you would like to follow with me, there are black Bibles in the seats in front of you. We've got two readings. I'm going to give you the second one, the reference first, so you can put your finger in that. And that can be found on page 1042. It's Luke chapter 11. When you've got your finger in that, turn over to page 744 for Isaiah 61. I'll wait a moment while you get those pages organised. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then turning over to Luke 11, starting at verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd were amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the word of God. In the Atlantic Monthly, that famous US magazine, some years ago, uh, the music journalist told how he experienced an incredible moment of musical discord and resolution. He was in a little sleepy jazz dive 
in Greenwich Village in New York one Tuesday evening in August. Just a handful of people in this tiny venue. And he could tell that the guy playing the trumpet was a little bit better than he should have been in this divey venue. And he alone in this little crowd could tell he was listening to perhaps the greatest living trumpeter who was just playing incognito with his buddies, Winton Marsalis. And the journal told how in the fourth song, Winton Marsalis set forward and played the most beautiful, haunting ballad. mobile phone went off at full volume, the journal wrote, it was a blaring rapid sing-song melody in electronic bleeps, and the guy took the call. People started giggling, started turning back to their beers and chatting to each other, and within moments, they'd forgot about what was happening on stage. And Winston Marsalis just stood there frozen, silent, eyes arched. And the journal at the back of the room got out his notepad and wrote the words, magic ruined. What happened next is pretty special. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. For now, I just want to make the point that some of us, when we look at the world or perhaps in our lives feel like writing magic ruined. That somehow life's beautiful melody that we sometimes hear, sometimes sing along with, is overcome by the cacophony, the discord. Magic ruined. Yet, as I said last week for those who were here as we focused on Jesus' teacher, At the very core of what Jesus taught was the promise that God would one day take all the discord and somehow weave it back into his eternal melody. Jesus called this the kingdom of God, as we saw last week. God proving himself king over this creation, restoring justice where there is tyranny, mending broken bodies and distorted environment, breathing life where there is death. And I think I said last week, if you have ever wished the Almighty would do something about the mess in the world, you have wished for the kingdom of God, the very heart and soul of Jesus' teaching. But our records insist that these weren't empty words on the part of Jesus. This was not just pie in the sky when you die. This was not the opiate of the masses. Think of heaven and don't worry about the world. Not at all. The Gospels say that Jesus offered tangible signs in his ministry of the mending of all things, of the overthrow of evil, 
of the restoration of all that is broken. And those tangible signs were his healings. That's where we're going to explore today. Last week, Jesus as teacher. This week, Jesus as healer. And we've got a lot of stuff to explore, and I promise to tell you the rest of the Winton Marsalis story, so just stay tuned for that, if nothing else. I want to acknowledge, though, that there are probably three questions thoughtful people want to ask when they hear about Jesus allowing the mute to speak and healing people of various diseases. Three questions we might want to ask about miracles. There is a little bit of philosophy that I think thoughtful people want to ask. At least I hope there are three or four of you who like a little bit of philosophy on Sunday morning. Then there's some history, and we've got to confront that. Is there, you know, evidence (laughs) that Jesus did anything like this? And uh, then, of course, I think all of us want to know something about the meaning. What what is this meant to have meant to Jesus, and what does it mean today? Now, I must say, at Sydney University, in the course uh, that I teach there, we give three hours just to the history bit of Jesus' healings. So you'll forgive me if I've got some gaps today. just want to give you a broad brushstroke of this ministry. Let me begin with the philosophy. Um, You may not know uh, that the philosophical argument about whether miracles are rational to believe in, which has been going on for about 250 years in modern philosophy, uh, has ended in a kind of stalemate a grumpy recognition that neither side can deal the decisive blow. Because it's dawned on people who are philosophizing about miracles that whether or not you think miracles are rational depends entirely on your background beliefs, the beliefs you bring to any evidence of miracles. So if I can put it like this, if I hold that the laws of nature define the limits of what is possible in the universe... That is, there is no lawgiver or God behind the laws. Then, in principle, miracles cannot be viewed as rational and no amount of evidence could ever show that a miracle has taken place. However, if I hold that the laws of nature do not define the limits of what is possible in the universe, that the laws themselves point to a mind or lawgiver behind the laws, then since such a lawgiver could act through and beyond the natural laws, it is, in principle, rational to believe in miracles where the evidence is good. In other words, the background belief of the atheist forbids the atheist to accept any evidence for miracles. That background belief prevents any belief in miracles. But if you're not an atheist, if you think there might be some kind of vague God behind the laws of nature, then you have all that you need at least to be open to the possibility of miracles if there were reasonable evidence. Incidentally, uh, McCrindle Research, one of the famous uh, research companies in Australia, uh, did a survey about miracles and a whole bunch of other things and found that 63% of Australians do accept the possibility of miracles, at least in theory. And it's interesting that that pretty much corresponds to the percentage of Australians who say they believe in some kind of God. So there seems to be quite a lot of overlap. But one of the best things about this survey is somewhere later in the survey, they asked specific questions about Jesus of Nazareth, and they discovered that 75% of Australians believe Jesus performed miracles. 
Just let that sink in for a second. More people think Jesus did miracles than think miracles are possible. So obviously some people in the survey ticked no to the possibility of miracles, but when they got to Jesus, they ticked yes. What is going on there? Probably just that classic Aussie love for Jesus. That sense that if anyone did miracles, it was him. I'm just not sure that they still happen. That's the philosophy, or a little bit of it anyway. Let me pivot to the history. If reports of Jesus' healing were marginal to the story, found only in one source that was very late, you can be sure that responsible historians would dismiss the miracles of Jesus. So for example, if healing stories about Jesus were only found in John's gospel, which many secular scholars think is the latest of the New Testament texts, only found in John's gospel, but all of the previous sources had no mention of miracles, responsible historians would say Jesus was originally a teacher, but there was this sort of evolution of ideas about him that climaxed in saying that he was a miracle worker, right? That would be pretty responsible history, actually. The thing is, no one actually thinks that. No one. Even completely secular historians who don't Uh, believe miracles are possible, still will grant we have weirdly early and widespread evidence. In fact, Jesus' healings are attested in eight separate sources. These are sources that haven't been copied from one another, and all of them come within living memory. That is, within a period where there would be some people still alive who had known Jesus when these were reported. Now, we, we spend a good 30 or 40 minutes just on this slide at Sydney Uni, I'm not going to do that, Uh, but just to say that we have eight separate uh, sources referring to Jesus and they haven't been copied from one another. And the last one, the reason I put it in yellow, Josephus, is interesting because it's one of two non-Christian references to Jesus performing miracles. We have another that is highly critical of Jesus and accuses him of sorcery, but this one, Josephus, uh, is interesting because it's neutral. It simply says, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man. He was one who wrought surprising feats. In the Greek that he wrote, paradoxa erga means paradoxical or baffling deeds. It's a neutral way of saying he did weird things. And he was a teacher. Weird things. And he was a teacher. My point, just very simply and perhaps too briefly, is to say that we have eight separate sources within living memory, all attesting to the miracle working of Jesus. And for historians, that really counts. Um, The question, though, is how does that compare with other alleged miracle workers from the ancient world? Thank you for asking. Let me give you the two best examples that you'll find in the literature in discussing the miracles of Jesus. The first is Hanina Bendoza, a rabbi, who was probably exactly the same age of Jesus, but he lived a lot longer. He lived to about the year 70. Uh, He was from Galilee, but his work was in Galilee and Judea. And our earliest reference to his healing activity is this one. When he would pray for the sick, he would say, this one shall live or this one shall die. They said to him, how do you know? He said to them, if my prayer is fluent, then I know that it is accepted and the person will live, but if not, I know that it is rejected and the person will die. Just spare a thought for all those who would go to Hanina for prayer. Wouldn't you just be hoping that he would, you know, not bumble his words as he prayed for you? Uh, But the thing I want you to notice is we have one source, one, 
that we know was written 130 years after Hanina's death. Okay, here's another example often put forward as the closest parallel to Jesus. It's not a Jewish healer, it's a pagan healer, Apollonius of Tyana, who was a philosopher in the late first century, died around the year 100. And in the year 220, we have a biography about Apollonius of Tyana that refers to all sorts of miracle working that does sound a little bit like what Jesus did. But look at the dates. This biography, this first reference to his healings, comes from 120 years after Apollonius is dead. One source. Put that on the screen. Hanina, you gotta wait 130 years to get one source. Apollonius, 120 years, still just one source. Jesus, we have three sources referring to his healings within 20 years. We have eight sources within 60 years, which is regarded as within living memory. This is why, friends, um, even scholars who don't believe miracles are possible think Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. And uh, here's a perfect representative, uh, Paula Fredrickson, uh, very openly not a Christian, says so in all her books. In fact, doesn't even believe miracles are possible, but she's a very well-known expert in uh, Rome and Galilee and Judea and written a bunch of books on Jesus. She's at Boston University. And she has a whole chapter, as all these scholars do, on the healing work of Jesus. And listen to what she says. Did Jesus of Nazareth perform miracles? Here, I, as a historian, have to weigh the testimony of tradition against what I think is possible in principle. I do not believe that God occasionally suspends the operation of what David Hume, the philosopher, called natural law. She doesn't believe in miracles. What I think Jesus might possibly have done, in other words, must conform to what I think is possible, which sounds like she's about to say Jesus didn't do anything that looks like miracles, but she goes on. So to answer my own question, yes, I think Jesus probably did perform deeds that contemporaries viewed as miracles. Those I have least trouble imagining his working are healings and exorcisms, the kinds of things that we heard in our Bible reading today. Uh, this is a conclusion reached by virtually everyone writing on the topic today of the historical Jesus. And it's a conclusion we can reach for no other figure of ancient history. It turns out we have exactly the kind of evidence we would expect if Jesus really did do miracles and much more evidence pointing in that direction than we would expect if it were a legend. Incidentally, we can say the same thing about the resurrection, uh, a topic I'm going to address here on Easter Day, but to preempt that, we have exactly the kind of evidence we would expect if Jesus rose from the dead and much more evidence pointing in that direction than we would expect if it were a legend. Which doesn't prove the resurrection or the healings because those background beliefs are operative. If you don't think healing is even possible in principle because you don't think there's anything but the laws of nature, you are kind of stuck. You have to look at that evidence and go, well, it looks like it, but it's not, it, it's not evidence of miracles. But if you're like, you know, most Aussies and you think there probably is a lawgiver behind the laws of nature, then you're at least free to assess the evidence and think, oh my goodness, it kind of looks like Jesus did healings. 
That's the history, or a little bit of it anyway. Let me turn finally to the meaning. The meaning, uh, both for Jesus and what it might possibly mean today. On the one hand, Jesus' healings are clearly acts of power and compassion. And I could turn to passages today that, that show that when Jesus healed someone, it, it says something like, he felt compassion and healed them. Or it will say, people were amazed at his authority. Okay, so that's, that's a sort of given. But actually, I, I want to spend our time now on an aspect of the meaning of Jesus' healings you, you might not have thought of, but is actually discussed in the literature to a great extent. Independently of each other, Luke and Matthew record Jesus saying that his miracles were previews of the coming kingdom that he preached about. He preached about a coming kingdom to make all things well, and he said that his healings were little glimpses of everything being made well. Here are the texts. So here's Luke's version that was read to us a moment ago. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew's version, which isn't copied from Luke, but is independent of Luke, says, Jesus saying, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The key phrase is exactly the same. Jesus said that his miracles were little glimpses of the future kingdom. As I've said, Jesus taught the kingdom would mend everything, would establish justice, would overthrow evil. All that we long for, Jesus said the kingdom will deliver. But here in Luke 11 and Matthew 12, Jesus says that kingdom can be glimpsed, previewed, if you like, in his miracles. They were in miniature moments where the kingdom of God comes and makes all things well. Uh, I hope this doesn't put you off, but let me quote one of the key textbooks that we study uh, at Sydney University, written by two uh, German nerds, uh, Professors Tyson and Mez, on this exact theme. Jesus combines two conceptual worlds which had never been combined in this way before. The apocalyptic expectation of universal salvation in the future and the episodic realization of salvation in the present through miracles. Nowhere else do we find a charismatic miracle worker whose miraculous deeds are meant to be the end of an old world and the beginning of a new one. This puts a tremendous emphasis on the miracles and it is unhistorical to relativize their significance for the historical Jesus. The present thus becomes a time of salvation in microcosm. Which is a nerdy way of saying, if God's kingdom is the feature film we are all waiting for, Jesus' healing ministry is the trailer, the glimpse of what's to come, the mending of all things. Which brings me back, of course, to Wynton Marsalis. His beautiful ballad, interrupted by some perverse electronic mobile phone and someone taking the call. 
Marsala stands frozen at the microphone, eyes arched, unsure what to do. Magic ruined. But the journal says in this Atlantic Monthly article that after a couple of minutes when no one was thinking about what was happening on stage anymore, Marsalis started to play. He started to play the mobile phone tune he'd heard. And people just like you did laughed and turned back to stage. <laughs> oh yeah, there was someone playing trumpet. And then he started to play with the mobile phone tune and hint at the notes he'd previously been playing in the ballad. But you've got to hear from the journo what happened. Marsalis repeated the mobile phone tune, began improvising variations on the tune, and the audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off. The journo ends. The ovation in the room was tremendous. Wouldn't you love to have been there that night and watched this? And I tell you this because it's not a bad picture of one of the central things Jesus said and did in his ministry. That the kingdom of God would come and somehow God would resolve all the discord, all the cacophony in your life and out there. Somehow. God will make all things well, bringing it to an almighty resolution, back to his eternal melody. Justice will be done on behalf of those who have experienced tyranny and evil. Mercy will be granted to everyone who humbly turns to God for forgiveness. Our ailing bodies and this broken environment, mended for eternity, and death itself will be undone by resurrection, and the ovation will be tremendous, the ovation will be tremendous. Here's the thing, the miracles of Jesus, and in fact, especially the resurrection of Jesus, are the first notes of the resolution. The first hints in the midst of the discord that another melody is on the way. That God can take the mess and make all things well. The miracles of Jesus tell us what kind of story we're in together. Is this a story of simply magic ruined? Or are we in a story with a resolution and a glorious ovation? Jesus said the latter, and I believe him. I believe him.
One of my dearest and most surprising friendships in the last 20 years was with this woman, Marie. Marie was a French atheist. And if you know anything about atheism, the French tend to do atheism best. Germans second best. She was a long-term academic at Sydney University, but during the 1940s, she was a student at uh, Paris University. And Paris in the 40s was the height of existential atheism, and she jumped in. And during that period, she read all of the great European philosophers in the three languages that she was proficient in. She read Hume and Descartes and Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus, devoured them all. And during those years, she said to us, she pursued experience. That was her language. She spoke with shame, actually, of those days, but never in detail. But after her years at Sydney University, she met a member of my church over at Roseville who got chatting to her about Christianity. She was a bit scoffing at first, but this member of my church lent her a Christian book, which she read, she devoured. She said, I shall have more of those books. And she went out to Kurong Books. No one there that day would have known the kind of person that was wandering around going, I'll have that one and that one and that one. She devoured them all. She read at such a high level and such a, sort of an array of Christian literature. It was funny. And then she decided she would come to church one day. She came. At the end of the service, she demanded an audience with the minister on that day. That was me. And so began... Oh man, countless hours of in-depth conversation and emails about the Christian faith over years actually and I will never forget an email she sent me one day just saying that she'd begun to think that Jesus might be the greatest discovery of her life. Here's what she wrote. Dear Buff and John, I'm so glad to have all the CDs of sermons as they help me each night to advance a bit more in my knowledge of Jesus. I find it incredible walking on the dusty roads of Palestine under the hot sun with a bunch of uneducated people should give me such pleasure and make me look at life so differently. In my life, I have read avidly all sorts of books and I never thought that the Gospels could stimulate thus my brain and give me at the same time the feeling that I had arrived to the most important discovery, to the only worthwhile discovery of my life. That was June. Many conversations, many emails. October, the next year, because she took things very slowly. 
she wrote me an email about her discovery of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. At one point in our conversation, I was talking of the miracle it had been for me to learn that God had forgiven me all my past sins and what joy I experienced in Christianity, a joy that was so evident that several people in the church remarked on it to me. But later, when I observed that I was indulging in the same sins again, I had moments of doubts. Would God continue to forgive me? Then by praying to tell God how sorry I was, the joy came back. It was as if God had forgiven me my past and present and perhaps future sins. This is probably not orthodox, but somehow I still believe it. I had great joy writing straight back to her saying, it's orthodox. Yes, past, present and future sins all gone because of Jesus Christ. But because she had read the Gospels, over and over and over and over. She was making up for lost time. She knew that forgiveness of sins was not the whole thing. That was like the doorway in. She knew that God had promised a kingdom, that God had promised to make all things well, to take all of the discord and resolve it. And she spoke of her hope in this kingdom in a Christmas card she sent to us the following year which I won't put on the screen because you could never read her writing, but let me read it to you. Dear John and Buff, I wish you a happy Christmas and a good new year to see the fulfillment of all your enterprises under the guidance of God to forward the coming of Jesus and the establishment of the new creation. She'd become a theologian by this point, right? I find reading about God's kingdom more and more inspiring and yes, it gives me hope in the future and now I pray every night that God will fill me with his spirit and make me a modest helper towards that great goal. Much love, Marie. Marie is gone now and sadly her final six months or so were full of the ache sadness, pain, discord that I know many of you have seen and experienced. But through it all, she kept her eyes fixed on the Jesus she had met in the Gospels, on his teaching of the kingdom, of his healings, of the mercy she found and of the promise of resolution. It was clear what we had to write on her grave. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Sadly missed until he makes all things new. From staunch atheist to humble, hopeful, child of God's kingdom. That is the story of Marie Graeber. It wasn't instant. It was slow, ponderous, cautious, annoying, convoluted, but glorious. 
Because she focused on Jesus, who taught, healed, was crucified for us and rose again. Walking on the dusty roads of Palestine with a bunch of uneducated people led her to the most important discovery of her life. And so I just close by saying, whether quick or slow, I, I pray for you, for this church. Most days I pray for Manly. That all of us will find Christ and his kingdom. Whose gospel teaches us about that kingdom displays in miniature what that kingdom will be like, who died and rose for our forgiveness and renewal to the greatest discovery of our lives. I've been doing this long enough to know that for some that's too quick. And you want to take little baby steps. Fantastic. Um, that alpha course starting in February. I, honestly, I can't think of anything better you could do to take little steps in the right direction because there you get to read about Jesus' life. You get to ask whatever questions you like. And as you walk on the dusty road with those uneducated people, I believe that you will meet God in Jesus Christ. Friends, would you um, please thank John again?